It isn't paranoia if they really are out to get you. There are countless variations of this phrase, this idea. And this terrifying notion is a double-edged sword, right? Which, when it all shakes out, is worse. If you have conjured everything, the men in dark coats hiding around corners, peering between blinds, out from behind bushes, then you run the risk of being seen differently. If this is a fabrication, no amount of evidence will be enough to convince you that it's all in your head. Those close to you might start handling you differently, or maybe begin to keep their distance. Maybe certain therapies or medications are suggested. Relationships suffer. On top of the constant fear of ethereal enemies, now add the very real possibility of pushing away physical allies, tangible friends and family. But is this worse than the alternative? Is it more frightening to consider that you could be right? That your smartphone and laptop are really listening to you? The government is reading your texts and emails, studying your phone conversations. What do you do when you receive unequivocal evidence that there really are sinister forces waiting in those bushes, or in your basement, under your bed? How would you handle the discovery that everyone around is hiding a secret, that they truly are out to get you? Is it better to have this idea all in your head? Bottom line, if the fateful day comes when you have confirmation that your conspiracy theories aren't theories at all, but facts, what will you do? Hide? Retreat within yourself to someplace safe? Or will you stand and fight back? Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 7 Beneath the sleeping guests, many floors down, the engines coughed and sputtered into life. The newness of the machinery still producing squeals and the low hum of diesel combustion. The Baroness had begun her journey. They were underway. Maybe it was this subtle rumble that woke her, pinioning from beam to girder, traveling up pipes and conduit, through kitchens and staterooms and supply closets, vibrating the bottles in the duty-free liquor store, and the poker chips languishing in their rounded wooden troughs. Or maybe it was the sound of the Baroness churning the water, its incredible tonnage beating down and stabbing through the waves. It didn't matter. Something had pulled Carolyn Hooper from sleep. But she kept her eyes closed as her first conscious thought was, Where am I? The bed beneath her was too soft to be the memory foam queen from her small Pittsburgh studio apartment. There was no white noise machine, no steady tick, tick, tick of the generations-old Roman numeraled clock that always floated over the divider from the kitchenette. Instead of the condensed stuffiness and clean sterility 
of air conditioning pumped through the vents of her slice of renovated textile factory, she could smell the crisp, salty brine of ocean. She wasn't at home. This place was new, foreign, and her heart seized. Why am I not at my apartment? In my own bed? It took Carolyn a solid 30 seconds of half-sleep mental fumbling to quash the hint of panic and remind herself that she was aboard a cruise ship. She'd chosen to ride the buses and airplanes to get to this spot. She hadn't been abducted. With relief, she opened her eyes. She was lying on her right side, like she normally would, but instead of seeing her matching Ikea dresser and nightstand, she saw balcony doors. She wasn't wearing her glasses, but she could see that one glass panel was cracked open a few inches, allowing the sea air in to rustle the floor-length curtains. As the fabric breathed slowly, light filtered in through the door, probably from the stars in a cloudless night sky, or nearby exterior lights mounted to the hull of the ship. The soft glow didn't illuminate much, but she could make out the corners and edges of furniture between her edge of the bed and the balcony. There was a love seat and a coffee table. As the pains of consciousness grew, so did her awareness of the inconsistencies in the room. First, the balcony door was reversed. When she'd first checked in, Carolyn had dropped her luggage and went right outside to gaze at the coastline and lean over the metal railing to take in the immensity of the ship. She had pulled the door open with her right hand. This one was slid to the left. And then there was the circular coffee table. Carolyn had put her suitcases on the table and tore through them, looking for something to replace the blue bikini. This table was empty. This was not the stateroom she had checked into. Room 221. Panic rose again, and it was then that she registered the faint sound of snoring behind her. When she felt weight shift on the cushioned mattress, her hands clenched fistfuls of comforter. She hadn't felt the heft, the closeness, or the breathing of another person beside her in bed for how long? Well over a year. Who is that? Carolyn thought. Where the fuck am I? She resisted the urge to throw the covers off and leap from the bed. Doing so would wake her bedmate and fix the attention on her. The still steady snoring meant that they were asleep and therefore, she assumed, posed no immediate danger. Put it together, she thought. Start at the beginning. Dinner. Carolyn remembered the need to get directions from multiple employees to the formal dining room. She remembered the obnoxious man and woman who'd arrived at the dinner table even later than she had. She remembered the lit cigarette and wardrobe malfunction, the subsequent departure of that couple, and the awkward yet strangely bonding silence that followed. She remembered liking everyone at table nine right away. There was Teresa and Chad, her neighbors from South Carolina, and, she mused, her foster parents for the journey. They had been on her left. And then there was a slightly younger couple on the right. Austin and Marie from Wisconsin. A professor and... Sylvia Penny, she thought. The writer. A quick montage of the vivid, suggestive e-book covers was interrupted by the final dinner guest. The reviewer. The guy from the elevator. Greg. Another panicked pang. Was this him? Was Greg the critic? Greg from the elevator snoring next to her? Better yet, was this Greg 
who she would now be imprisoned on a cruise ship with and at nightly dinners for the next two weeks? What did I do? Carolyn thought. Was she going to have to stare across at the table at a virtual stranger each night and know that she'd known him for less than three hours before sleeping with him? Or would it happen again? He didn't strike her as the type who would request a different dining assignment in order to avoid the cloying awkwardness and then move on to another single woman aboard the Baroness. But then again, how could she know? She'd only known him for basically an elevator ride and a dinner thus far. Or what if it was the opposite? What if the first words out of his mouth were, I love you? What if he became clingy, obsessive? Oh God, she thought. What if I do? Stop! Carolyn was getting ahead of herself. She launched into a more thorough replay of the evening. She had dug into her second glass of Sauvignon Blanc, a suggestion from Anwar, their server, based on her dinner order. The wine made her feel loose enough to break the lingering silence left by Zofia and Lazy. She'd been sharing looks and grins with Greg throughout the meal, and realized he never got to finish introducing himself, at least not to her. Ah, yes, the critic, Carolyn had said. You aren't getting off that easy. Carolyn watched the collective attention fixate on Greg. A critic? Austin from Wisconsin asked. In the sudden hot seat, Greg shifted in the chair and cleared his throat. He was cute, with short brown hair that was beginning to show signs of balding. Thick, black-framed glasses that, although they were coming back in style, were probably his preferred choice since grade school. He wasn't in peak physical shape, not like that assistant cruise director Donnie, but a man who seemed comfortable with himself. She didn't like men who paid more attention to their own reflection than the rest of the world. No, a man with a dad bod was more her speed, a man with more to hold on to. Come on, tell the class about yourself, Carolyn said, a round of slight chuckles from the table. Who are you and where are you from? Uh, Again, I'm, I'm Greg Hughes. I'm not a critic per se, but I'm a a travel reviewer. He raised his glass toward Carolyn and continued, Thank you for revealing my villainous secret. Well, we've got two weeks ahead of us, Carolyn said, making sure he could see the gleam in her eyes, even through her glasses. Best we get it all out in the open now. Yes, well, I, I write for a travel magazine, so they send me on cruises to get the scoop on events and attractions, try the food, the culture. Have you been on many of these? Marie from Wisconsin asked. A few. More than a few. Well, how does this one stack up so far? Her husband, Austin, asked. Too early to tell, really, but my cabin is rather lavish. Carolyn found herself picturing his room, thinking about what he might have stowed in his luggage. She saw razors, even though he had a short beard. She saw toothpaste and cologne. Had he brought books with him to pass the lazier hours of the day? What did he like to read? Had he brought condoms with him? Were they tucked away somewhere deep in his bag? She pegged him for a mystery fan, and a secret pouch for condoms did seem a bit too presumptuous for him. There were a round of agreements about the luxuries and amenities of the other's staterooms. Everyone had been upgraded to suites and felt like pampered royalty. The entertainment thus far, Greg said, nodding to Zofia and Laszlo's recently vacated seats, has been top-notch. Five stars. Everyone else laughed. He was funny, even if he wasn't trying to be, 
Carolyn could tell most of his jokes would be self-deprecating or subtle jabs at the misfortune of others, not in a cruel way, but just enough to cover his own social anxieties. Carolyn was the same way. Greg went on. And the culture, yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome so far. The company, I mean. He was referring to the table when he raised his glass for a second time, but Greg's eyes never broke from Carolyn's. Shy, funny, and he was charming. To Carolyn, the room had narrowed, as if the dozens of other tables were far, far away. Table nine, the burgeoning connections, specifically with Greg the critic, felt good. It had only been an hour or so, but there was a solidity. She could feel it. Even the ridiculous half-clothed couple were, in their own way, endearing. Maybe the spontaneity of this trip wasn't misguided. For the first time, not just aboard the Baroness, but in the monotonous months since Ben left, Carolyn felt herself let go. Can I ask you all something, though? Greg asked, his voice taking on a more serious tone. His gaze broke from Carolyn and shifted to the tablecloth. Off the record? Teresa from South Carolina asked. And Carolyn felt the woman pat her forearm. Maybe she'd noticed the shared looks between Carolyn and Greg. Maybe she could sense something there. Was there something there? As a rule, Greg said, when I'm on one of these for business, nothing is off the record. But you're all great so far, so don't worry. If I add anything specific to the review, I'll change the names to protect the innocent. Have no fear, you aren't risking any future perks when sailing with Celebration Vacations. We'll go on then, Teresa's husband, Chad, asked. Well, he began, then paused, as if not sure how to form the question. Did any of you find anything in your staterooms? I mean, anything weird? This caught Carolyn off guard. She hadn't spent a whole lot of time in room 221, changing and freshening up a brief sojourn to the balcony. But she still searched flashes of memory. Nothing stood out. She shook her head. The couple from Wisconsin shared a glance, and Marie said, Like what? I don't know, just... Greg began, then stopped, it appeared, to settle on the right words. His face slipped into a deeper red. He really was shy. Our club fun cards were delivered to the wrong room, Teresa said, and turned to wink at Carolyn. Something like that? Yeah, I guess, Greg said. There was lipstick on our bathroom mirror, Marie said. At first, I was a little grossed out. It's a pretty unsanitary, like housekeeping missed some evidence of a previous guests putting their lips on it. Or maybe they'd kissed it themselves, which might be even weirder. Adults-only cruise, her husband murmured. But Austin here said it might have been a little nod to the theme, you know, like they had some sort of lip-shaped stamp just for that little touch. Did you all have that in your rooms? Everyone, including Carolyn, shook their heads. Then something clicked. Carolyn asked, Wait, wasn't that in your book? Before Marie could respond, Teresa said, That's right! Oh, what was it called? Yeah, uh, The Girl from Last Night. Marie looked down at her folded hands and said, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, she left the kiss when someone would sneak out, Carolyn said. It was her note. 
Teresa's husband, Chad, chimed in then. It's like you ladies are speaking in code. What are you talking about? Teresa patted his hand, like she were about to explain the inner workings of some innocuous mystery to a child, and said, Well, in her book, in Marie's book, there's a lost woman. She's searching for meaning, searching for something to make her feel whole. She goes out to bars and nightclubs, and she begins acting really slutty. Teresa paused, studied Marie across the table, as if she had overstepped some invisible boundary. Let's just say she was overly promiscuous. But it was a defense mechanism, like she was protecting herself. Been there, girl, Carolyn thought. But aloud, she heard herself say, when she wakes up in the middle of the night, next to some random hookup, she tiptoes around, gathering her things, and then she sneaks out. But before she goes, she reapplies her lipstick and kisses the mirror, a little something for the man to remember. Realizing they were basically reading the book jacket, both Teresa and Carolyn looked to Marie for something like confirmation. Marie said, You got it. Well, Chad said, does she ever find what she's looking for? You'll have to read the book, silly, his wife said. It isn't exactly James Patterson, but I think... Wait, you don't suppose housekeeping knew about the book? About you? I had the same thought. But there's no way. Couldn't. Had to be coincidence, right? That's a pen name. And our room is booked under Austin's name, anyway. Marie paused, and with a smile said, Even his name, it's printed on the top of my club fun card. Don't get me started on that, Teresa said. Beside her, Chad couldn't contain a full-body giggle. Teresa turned back to Greg. Anyway, I wouldn't say we had anything weird in our room. Not really. But there were some crazy towel animals, though. Carolyn saw Greg stiffen. Next to him, Austin from Wisconsin followed suit, as if both men had some adverse reaction to faux animals. Greg asked, What sort of animals? I don't know, they look like dogs. Folded ears, curled tails. Two of them. What were they doing? Greg asked. He seemed much more interested in linen origami than someone should. Well, they were playing, I guess. Wrestling, Teresa said. Why are you asking? After a decent pause, Greg said, Yeah, they were wrestling. I had the same in my room. She'd just met him and couldn't possibly have any idea what his tells were, but Carolyn felt sure that Greg was holding something back. The conversation went on throughout the dessert course, and Carolyn told Table 9 more about herself and the library, about her tiny apartment and the after-school book club she had been trying to organize. From her table mates, she learned even more about Teresa and Chad's grandchildren, about what their hobbies were and where the eldest was going for college. To that point, the couple hadn't mentioned their direct offspring, as if the generation had been skipped. On the other side of the table, Carolyn learned more about Marie's short, but so far successful writing career, how it had always been a dream of hers. From Austin, Carolyn learned about the woes of academia, about mind-numbing, soul-eviscerating faculty meetings, that students, each semester, seemed to get worse and worse. There were bright spots, though. Austin said, 
I used to be so hard on myself, so convinced that there was something more I could be doing. But then I finally realized I can do only so much. I've gotten to the point now that if, out of all of my classes each term, I get through to just one student, just one, then it all feels worth it. Carolyn also learned that he spent his free time collecting vinyl records. The couple had two children, one college-bound, and a pair of Labradors that they appeared more proud of than their kids. From Greg, Carolyn learned that he was in his mid-30s, only a few years older than her. He was single, and in a handful of fantasy football leagues, and he was looking to relocate. His job was remote, so he could basically live wherever he wanted. She almost blurted out that Pittsburgh was beautiful this time of year, but stopped herself, as this was way more forward than Carolyn usually was, and that no, Pittsburgh, at the edge of snow season, with old black snow piled onto most available surfaces, wasn't for everyone. After dessert, Donnie Fredericks, who Carolyn had begun thinking of as Creepy Blondie, cleared his throat into a microphone and made a few announcements. First, that, unfortunately, the captain couldn't make it to dinner in order to introduce himself. He was indisposed. But he would definitely be attending the following night. Next, a reminder that certain areas were off-limits on the ship, and that they had already needed to remind certain guests of this. Safety, he reiterated, was his and Celebration Vacation's top priority. Finally, that while the Baroness had four nightclubs, due to the skeleton crew and low passenger count, only two would be operational during their voyage. This would, in his words, make finding love on the waves easier. The first, Your Cheatin' Heart, was a country and western themed spot, the line dancing sort. Yes, there was a mechanical bull and plastic cowboy hats available for anyone who felt the need to cowboy or cowgirl up. The second was Wax Tracks, a larger, neon-drenched, new-wave throwback, but promised to have different themes every night. You won't know, Donnie said, until you get there. As the guests of Table 9 got to their feet, they relayed their plans. Austin and Marie were going to find something a little more low-key. They'd heard there was a piano bar somewhere on the Lido deck. Maybe, if they caught a fourth or a fifth wind, they might venture down to the club, but it wasn't likely. Chad, with the glaze of sleep already in his eyes, was fading fast, and Teresa said, That's for you young folks. I've got some phone calls to make back in the room. You two, though, you should check out one of those clubs, Teresa said, actually grabbing both Carolyn and Greg's hands. There was a subtle pull, as if Teresa were trying to physically move her and Greg closer together. Yeah, that's a... Greg started. I'd love to, Carolyn said, scaring herself, both because she was sure her eagerness would come off as desperate or intense, and because she said she would love to go to a nightclub. She wasn't a nightclub kind of woman. Never had been. But really, was it the club? With the pounding bass and sweaty dancing that had gotten her excited? Or was it the possibility of spending more time with Greg? Let's do it, Greg said, smiling. Carolyn returned the gesture, and between them, Teresa smiled brightest, as if she had just completed her most important mission of the night. They made a plan to meet in 20 or 30 minutes at the nightclub. Then Carolyn went with Teresa and Chad back up to their floor. After saying their goodnights, Carolyn changed her shoes, and before leaving her room again, 
flipped on the bathroom light to check for any lipstick. She found none. Instead, she appraised herself in the mirror. Though it really wasn't her thing anymore, she had brought a tiny makeup bag. Just a few pencils and brushes. She was going to a nightclub after all. What could a few highlights, some accents, hurt? The light and music spilling out from wax tracks was everything she'd remembered and hated from her undergrad. Strobes and drop shots, that's all it was. A place to leave inhibition aside and, like her college roommates, seek out some bad decisions. Was that what she was doing? Searching for some new regret? She steeled herself, mentally preparing to walk into the club alone. This was always so awkward for her. Not just at nightclubs, but anywhere. Carolyn always felt like someone was watching her. Like those old western movies where the only sound were the intruder's footsteps and the creaking of the swinging saloon door behind them. But then she saw that she wouldn't have to go it alone. When a group of bachelorettes shuffled inside, she saw Greg was waiting for her. He held out an arm for her to grab onto. They went inside. And that's where Carolyn's memory became fuzzy like a worn-out VHS tape. She remembered Greg buying their first round of drinks, he switching from straight scotch to something that glowed deep red in the club's lights. Carolyn stuck with white wine. They didn't dance, not at first. Instead, they shouted over the deafening music. The night's theme was 90s house party, and Carolyn remembered feeling good. They shared favorites, colors and music and American cities. He'd always wanted to visit Pittsburgh. They had a second round of drinks, which Carolyn picked up, and giggled about their shared knowledge and ability to quote dick and fart jokes from the comedies of their youth. They both avoided eye contact when Zofia and Laszlo entered the club and ordered an oversized bottle of champagne. Carolyn remembered Greg liking some of her go-to novels and noting how many interests they truly shared. They made fun of the frat bros who were seven or eight spots down. The pair had more drinks and almost died laughing when the fraternity collided with the bachelorette party, and they took turns narrating the conversations they presumed were unfolding between the groups. They spent many more rounds of drinks just flirting. God, that felt good. How long had it been since she just flirted? And just as they let their guard down, Laszlo landed. He shouted, My friends! My good dinner friends! I had no idea that you two were... He touched the tips of his index fingers together. When neither Greg nor Carolyn confirmed, Lazy went on, I see. Not yet. But before the night is over, no? The waves are making you feel the love. Maybe to stop the awkward train before it left the station and gathered steam. Or maybe because she really was letting go. Carolyn shouted that the four of them should do shots. Greg took vodka with Lazy, while Carolyn had a small glass of Chambord and milk with Sophia. While it was actually tasty, she switched to tequila for the next one, and the two after that. While Carolyn didn't recall him asking, she did remember them on the dance floor together. The soft, welcoming pressure of his hand on her hip, her own hand reaching up and grazing his beard while gripping his shoulder. The last clear snatch of conversation she remembered was during a lull between songs. Because he was a bit taller than her, Carolyn pulled his head down so she could whisper, It'll happen eventually, 
so we might as well just get this over with and kiss. You think so? Greg asked, but moved in with his lips before she could move hers. Then, everything was choppy. Flashes of memory, like the strobe light. One of the bachelorettes, maybe even the bride-to-be, climbing onto the bar and trying to take off her shirt, but getting stuck in it, then giving up and allowing a bartender to pull her down. The DJ saying the party would go all night. A frat bro trying to cut in and dance with her, and, after declining, noting how polite Greg and the random man were about it. No puffed chests or hurled insults. She remembered getting separated from Greg and dancing by herself, and ordering another glass of wine alone. Then she remembered, oh god, dancing with Laszlo. His sunglasses and mesh shirt. First him holding her close, then both of his arms pumping up, fingers grabbing at some invisible bar on the club ceiling. Greg wasn't around. Neither was Sophia. And that was it. That's where her memory tape ended. But what happened next? Clicking out of her hazy memories from the night before, and back into the present, Carolyn realized she wasn't hearing the steady drone of snoring behind her any longer. Is that Laszlo? Holy shit, did I sleep with Laszlo? Carolyn thought. Do I get to add homewrecker to my resume? Wait, were they even married? Carolyn was spiraling, her mind conjuring and forcing a thousand different scenarios and outcomes to the forefront, then replacing them with worse. Her heart was beating hard enough that she thought the man behind her could feel it through the mattress. Then, a voice. And Carolyn clenched her teeth. Good morning. No accent. This wasn't Laszlo. Carolyn waited. I don't know why, but I kind of half expected you to be gone when I woke up. And I'd find lipstick on the mirror. Finally, she turned over, getting herself further tangled in the sheets. For a split second, she didn't recognize him. He wasn't wearing the thick black-framed glasses. But the beard and grin were the same. She was in Greg the Critic's bed. She felt a wave of relief. Not that Laszlo was unattractive, but because he was obviously committed to someone else. Then, another bit of panic. She'd only met Greg the day before. Lipstick, she said. Oh my god, did we... We didn't do anything he said, laughing. He pulled back his side of the comforter to reveal that he was wearing the same outfit he had on the night before. What did I... Carolyn began, and tore off her own covers. She, too, was still fully clothed. More relief, and maybe just a slight hint of disappointment, washed over her. With a sigh, she said, Good. Hey, now, I know I'm not John Cusack hot, but give me a break. No, I didn't... That's not what, Carolyn said, stuttering. What did we do? Came back here, watched a movie, Greg said, and she followed his finger as he pointed. She lifted her head for the first time and saw stacks of plates on the stateroom desk. We ordered room service. More memory came into focus then. Them giggling together while trying to walk a line down the uncomfortably straight hallway. Him dropping his key twice before getting the door open. Greg ordering hot tub time machine on pay-per-view, and the two of them lying on their stomachs, legs kicking in the air, quoting each line of the film. She remembered not caring how many mozzarella sticks Greg watched her eat. You really don't remember? Greg asked. 
No, I, I do. Well, I'm starting to, at least. Well, we were drunk and tired from the day, Greg said. Burned out from dancing. And after what you saw in the bathroom, I guess both of us just wanted to... What bathroom? Carolyn asked. What happened? And then the whole scene came back. Not in pieces or fragments, but like a full deleted clip picked up from the cutting room floor. At some point, Carolyn excused herself and headed for the bathroom. She wanted to freshen up, reapply some sparse makeup elements. Nestled inside an alcove next door to wax tracks, the bathroom doors faced one another, and Carolyn pushed open the door with mermaids written in cursive over the wood grain. The space was larger than she expected, a line of six aquarium-colored stalls. Her footfalls echoed on the matching tile. Maybe she'd seen too many horror movies or read too many articles about abductions, but ever since she could remember, Carolyn had a process when she entered a public restroom. She needed to know if she was alone or not. Mostly for the first excursion into a foreign ladies' room. The library in Pittsburgh had become as familiar as the one in her apartment. Softly, she sang a few notes of Somewhere over the rainbow and waited for the erratic spin of the toilet paper rolls or snap of the underwear elastic as other women might realize they were no longer alone and announce their own presence somehow. And if that didn't work, Carolyn bent down and looked beneath the gap for signs of life. In the last stall, she could see legs. Carolyn kept singing to prevent the lady from feeling the crushing embarrassment if she were having a rough time in the toilet, only to emerge and find out that she had had an audience for her soundtrack. Satisfied that she had announced herself properly, Carolyn went to the nearest sink. Opening her clutch, she pulled out lipstick and a mascara pen. And then she thought, am I getting ahead of myself? He might not even be interested. Stop it, Carolyn thought. Of course he was. They were dancing. They'd kissed. And they were getting fairly drunk. She felt the alcohol as she tried to focus on her reflection. She knew she was attractive. Kept herself in good shape. Her breasts weren't splitting the seams of her bra, but she was happy with what she had. She had big eyes beneath her glasses, and a heterochromatical gene that made the pupils different colors. Deep blue on the left, brown with a slice of green on the right. She called her right eye a pygraph. At first, she'd been self-conscious about the difference, and the glasses, rather than contacts, had been an attempt to distract attention. But as she got older, her eyes became something that defined her, and each pair of eyeglasses she bought had successfully larger lenses to accentuate this unique part of herself. She wondered if Greg had noticed. It had taken many years, beyond her 30th birthday, but she felt now, despite problematic relationships, Comfortable with herself. She was a bookworm, and she was shy. She was a librarian, but Carolyn knew she could be a sexy one. Hurrying to finish the touch-ups, Carolyn gathered her things and slung the clutch around her wrist. She rinsed her hands and was wiping them off with a paper towel when she heard something from the last stall. Something soft. Breathing. Or moaning. The woman must have been having a really hard time. It was awkward, but there was a sort of unspoken camaraderie in the woman's room. In a culture where women were expected not to burp or fart, and they surely never took a dump, the ladies' room was often a place of acceptance. These were all normal bodily functions, and this was a place where you didn't have to hide or hold it in. 
Other women might be there to hand a few squares of tissue beneath the stall wall, or maybe a comforting grin of solidarity as they washed their hands in adjacent sinks. You got this, Carolyn thought. But the breathing was gaining momentum, becoming rough, ragged. Carolyn found herself inching down the tile toward the final stall. She didn't know why, but something about the sound effects made her feel as though this poor girl might need help. The moaning slowly changed into low growling, grunting. Carolyn felt herself tense, but stayed on track toward the stall door. This wasn't a woman's voice. She was a few feet away when she stopped. Below the harsh grunting was a softer, weaker sound. Raspy, quick breaths that seemed to follow the punctuated grunting noises like a fading echo. And then it hit her. This wasn't a lonely woman, and she wasn't having stomach issues. No, there were two people in the stall. Unable to stop herself, Carolyn leaned in to peer through the narrow crack between stall door and wall. She'd heard people having sex in bathrooms before. And the idea of exposing one's genitals to the grime and bacteria of a public restroom was usually enough to send Carolyn out without a second thought. But now, for some reason, she felt drawn to the sounds. Maybe it was the growing tension between her and the critic on the dance floor. She had to know what was going on in that stall. A man's back, rippling with muscles and a thin layer of sweat, filled most of the small space. His back held a deep tan, and with each thrust, the cords of muscle threatened to tear through the flesh. She could barely see around him, but on either side of his ribcage, Carolyn saw a pair of legs pointed upward, almost in a perfect line to the ceiling. The legs were hairless, and one foot still retained a sparkling blue heel. The woman must have been propped up on the back of the toilet tank, and supremely flexible, judging by the position she was in. Looking down, Carolyn saw the other heel lying just inside the door. She stared at the shoe and listened. Their noises were growing even louder, as if approaching the end, building to a final crescendo. Yet the grunting and moaning and growling was changing, slowly becoming decipherable. Words. At first, a call and response. He would say it, followed by the woman's repetition. Then, they were in unison, chanting the same phrase. He is, he is, he is... And then, as suddenly as it seemed to have begun, it was over. Silence filled the space, save for the sound of water trickling from the faucet and Carolyn's own heartbeat thudding in her ears. Only then did Carolyn pull her eyes up from the single blue heel, back up to the body of the man in the stall. Carolyn saw the shock of white blonde hair first, then a single piercing eye peering back at her through the crack in the door. Donnie. Though she couldn't see the curvature of his mouth, there was something about his dark brown iris that told Carolyn the assistant cruise director was grinning, silently laughing behind the door. The eye's gaze pushed her back, and bumping into one of the sink's basins, Carolyn felt herself shift into gear. She was out of the bathroom, not looking back over her shoulder. The hallway was filled with music and shouting voices from inside wax tracks. Some obviously drunk folks milled around. One of the bachelorettes was walking in a circle, jabbing at her phone as if trying to make whoever was on the other line magically disappear. Rather than go toward the music, she went left and leaned against the cool wall, trying, in a half-drunk state, to process what she'd just seen. It wasn't long before the bathroom door opened, and she watched Donnie emerge from the alcove, 
walking away from her, both of his hands tucking the shirt tail of his uniform back in. Carolyn waited to see where he was headed, and when he didn't enter wax tracks, she pushed off the wall. Then, the bathroom door opened again. She needed to see who thought it was a good idea to sleep with Donnie Fredericks, creepy blondie. The woman stumbled a bit, nearly tripping over a heel, and Caroline recognized the dress immediately. She'd seen a breast fall out of it during dinner. Sophia. Waiting a bit longer, until Sophia was swallowed again by the spectacle of wax tracks, Carolyn jogged over to the entrance. She wanted to find Greg and get out of there, not caring where they would go or what they would do next, only that she no longer had any desire to be alone. Thanks, as always, for listening to another episode of The Ghost Modernist. New chapters release every Tuesday at midnight. I'm excited to announce that the show has been making appearances in some top podcast charts, and I have you to thank for that. Your streams, follows, and downloads definitely help keep the show afloat. So, too, do ratings and reviews. These give folks an idea of what to expect, more than any trailer or written description. If you haven't yet please go throw a few words on a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I cannot tell you how much it helps the show. The music and theme song for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?